0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Arizona, home of professional mountain biker Alex Pavon, who grew up in Flagstaff wanting to be not a mountain biker, but a professional ski racer.
1: I joined the ski team when I was about four, like as soon as I could like ski without my parents.
0: In Flagstaff, you wake up every morning about 15 minutes from a ski hill, and Alex Pavon was all in on skiing from a very young age. But then she got hurt.
1: And I tore my ACL, MCL, LCL, lateral and medial meniscus, my hamstring, and like slightly fractured my femur.
0: She healed up, but then it happened again.
1: After extensive (laughs) talks with myself, decided that maybe I should find a new sport because ski racing was trying to injure me. So that's how I got into mountain biking.
0: In Flagstaff, you wake up every morning about 15 minutes from excellent technical mountain biking. And Alex Pavan was all in from a slightly less young, but still pretty young age.
1: So I bought my first, like, modern bike and just started riding more.
0: Soon after that, she started entering races, and then found herself on the podiums, town. and now spends six months of the year traveling and racing bikes. I mean, it's a pretty good plan B. It's kind of your backup plan, it sounds like. like, Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's not too it bad. Is. It's not that growing up in Arizona made her a professional grade rider, but it didn't hurt.
1: If you want to go skiing, you can go skiing. And if you want to hike the Grand Canyon, you can hike the Grand Canyon. It's very conducive to uh, being an athlete.
0: Go to VisitArizona.com for their Arizona-style backup plans. That's VisitArizona.com. from Outside Magazine and PRX. These are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. A few weeks ago, you probably remember this, it seemed like the whole country froze completely solid. And we begin tonight with the dangerous Arctic blast. A bomb cyclone. It was a bomb cyclone. The bomb cyclone, how can I forget? I've been saying it for a week. What struck me about the hashtag bomb cyclone is that it's a surprisingly militaristic term for a weather event. It makes it sound like we're at war with winter itself, when really the cold just made everything inconvenient. Water towers froze, cars disappeared under the snow, and public transportation went haywire. It was like a reminder that in the cold, even the most basic tasks can become near impossible. A brutal snowstorm. Tens of thousands of, of, of homes are already without power, and it's- in- Of course, in some places, a minus 10 degree day doesn't make the national news. It's just Monday. And today, we have a story about what happened when an entire country not only had to complete basic tasks, they had to go to war in the brutal, deadly, unforgiving cold.
2: enemies behind us. It's following our
0: trucks. That country is Finland. And today, their soldiers are some of the most advanced winter warfare specialists anywhere. They're called the Jaeger Brigade. And you're listening to them train soldiers from all over the world in winter combat. Last winter, writer David Woolman went to train with the Jaegers. My name is David Wolman. I'm a writer and journalist based in Portland, Oregon. He wanted to know what skills it took to survive in cold-weather combat. And more importantly, what use are those skills today when wars are more about intercontinental ballistic missiles and drone strikes than outflanking an opposing force? So outside flown to Helsinki in the dead of winter, and then David drove 300 miles north to a small military base in Lapland, 62 miles north of the Arctic Circle. He was there for a week, training with special forces soldiers who had come to learn the same really cool, but possibly outdated, skills.
2: So they let me tag along with them. So I dropped my gear in this bunkhouse thing and just fell into line as best I could. And all this crazy stuff happened.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Each Um, day started at 5.30 in the morning, about five hours before the sun came up at 10 a.m. And then it went down again at 2.30 in the afternoon. So all through the day, and often in the dark, they practiced drilling ice cores and evaluating the snowpack. And all the little things that go beyond just winter travel into winter combat.
2: You know, how not to get snow in the sight of a weapon or in the barrel. Lots of little tiny things. Like, you never blow it. You wouldn't blow the snow out of the sight because actually the moisture from your breath will cause new problems. So they have all these little tiny things. Then we did this stuff with booby traps. they, They were very careful to tell me to put my camera and notebook away for that, and we don't want to talk about any of that. And then... They were later in the program after I had left, unfortunately, to go interview some military people in Helsinki, they slaughtered two reindeer in the field and ate them. So I was sort of bummed to miss that. Oh, we also did a ton of fire making. I mean, fire making in the snow and like cold, wet knees and just like shaking hands, so hungry. Like there was one time where we had had to make a fire, put it out, make a fire, put it out. I mean, that was exhausting. And even for some of the pros, it was kind of tiring. And that was, um, it was validating when some of the uh, Special Forces guys were like, you know, we just carry a lighter.
0: (laughs) Probably the most brutal test, however, was skiing straight into a hole in a frozen lake, wearing all of their gear. It was the kind of cold water that can cause heart attacks, and all their warm, dry clothes would be in there with them.
2: You know, I was apprehensive about it, but one thing that was helpful was being able to watch a few people do it before me, including, like, some of these super big, burly, never-smiling, no-comment-to-the-journalist-guy Finnish troops get in that cold water and just act like the biggest babies I'd ever seen.
0: In a lot of ways, being a soldier is about reacting well and performing under stress. And the cold is just another form of stress. But it's cold a lot of places. And most of those places have a military. And yet we go to Finland to learn how to be better soldiers in the cold. Because the Finns have more riding on these skills than almost anywhere else. For them, it's not just a drill. Finland shares an 830 mile border with Russia. And after Russia's invasion of Crimea and Ukraine, and the fact that Russian submarines have been caught trolling Finnish waters, and Russian jets repeatedly enter Finnish airspace, the idea of defending that border looks less hypothetical all the time.
2: As a writer, you don't want to play into this world of um, creating an escalation that isn't there. Right? There isn't a sign that Putin is going to go after Finland tomorrow. But if you work for the Ministry of Defense in Finland, or really if you're just Finnish period, you kind of have this worry about Russia anyway. It's, it's in your DNA. Uh, because over the centuries, people loosely described as Finnish have gone to war with people loosely described as Russian, like dozens of times. That was a story I wanted to learn more about, you know, especially the, the Winter War of 1939-1940. It, it really defines who these people
0: are. In the winter of 1939, it was starting to become clear that Russia and Germany were going to go to war. And so Stalin and Hitler were sort of editing the map of Europe to their strategic advantage. And for his part, Stalin was worried that if Hitler successfully invaded Finland, the Nazi army would have access to both the Baltic Sea and Leningrad, the Russian army's stronghold.
2: And so Stalin's idea was that he could create more of a buffer zone. He didn't want the Germans to just waltz through Finland and get really close to...
0: Preemptively invading Finland so that Germany can't do it later.
2: Like, let's, let's, um, let's add some cushion. And the presumption was walking into Finland was super easy. And as we can discuss, he couldn't have been more wrong. So first tell me your name and where where are we sitting okay. in, the, in the
0: world?
3: <laughs> we we are here in Finland, in the east part of Finland, Suomussalmi, uh, about two kilometers away from Russia now.
0: This is Helena Seppanen. She's the owner of a guest house that David stayed in while he was visiting towns along the border with Russia, before joining the Jaeger Brigade. He was the only guest, and over dinner, the family started telling him this incredible Paul Revere-style story about their mother, who saw the Russian army coming, and hauling her children behind her in a sled, she ran ahead of the army giving local soldiers the chance to hold them off. Tell
2: me about her escape.
3: Okay, um, Lempi, my mother-in-law and uh, my husband's mother.
2: And so this is late November 1939. It's actually early morning, although it's so dark all the time in the winter there. It all blends together, but it's very early hours and the men at that time were in the forest like doing forestry work. And this woman with her young children, was just starting, like, the day and food preparation.
3: She was going to make some porridge for them, but she didn't have any flour. So uh, at the, she went out, and at the same time, they had a dog inside. It sneak off outside, and then she started to park.
2: So as the story went, to get a better view of what the dog was upset about, she climbed a couple of rungs of the ladder leaning against their home.
3: And she saw so many black...
2: People are coming from the forest. And she could see this long line of no, no, Soviet soldiers, like their silhouettes.
3: She saw that how they were already coming. So it was only about 200 meters away, the soldiers coming. So she only had one minute to time to go. And um, she, she went to other skied, to the river I
2: can't remember the, the exact distance now. About
3: 17 kilometers. In total. Yeah, in total. She's, she was thinking that she had to get the word to the soldiers and Russians are here.
2: Her route led her past a bunch of neighboring farms so I think there was even like a in the family lore anyway, there's a count of how many people she warned to like get out of the way and it was more than 100. Uh,
3: 133 people because of her. yeah because of her.
2: The Finnish soldiers that were there I think they were hunkered down at a, at a school in preparation for this
3: potential invasion. Uh, they were only about forty, fifty men here against these ten thousand men, um, but they could hold them for a few days.
2: So it was, you know, incredibly m- moving um, to sit and listen to this family talk about what what the woman had done, and at the same time, after spending a couple of weeks in Finland, it it almost felt like. Everyone had amazing stories like this, you know, maybe not quite that kind of drama or maybe not quite like a Paul Revere in miniature thing. But um, this sense that that history was just a couple days ago is really pervasive.
0: The invasion lasted one hundred and five days, and there's a reason it stands as a cornerstone of modern Finnish identity, because the Soviets hadn't handed to them. After his stay at the inn, David traveled to the site of one of the pivotal battles, where reenactors were commemorating the fighting.
2: We are standing, standing right now a few hundred meters from Rate Road, where passed away about 17,000 Russians and uh, about 800 Finnish soldiers.
0: This is Sami Piljahama from the Rate Museum. And he told David that the Red Army was the largest military force the world had ever seen. Finland, on the other hand, was mostly farmers. No one expected them to fend off Stalin's army. But the Finns had a couple of things going for them. For an attacking enemy,
2: Finland is an absolute nightmare. The rolling terrain, the temperatures, the monotony of the pine forests. If you're an attacking force, in this case the Soviets, like, with this heavy equipment that's mostly restricted to the few roads cutting from the Soviet Union into Finland, then you're sort of a sitting duck for anybody who is um, stealthy and mobile. Little groups of people on skis. Finnish soldiers, they were everywhere. And <laughs> Stalin was said that this is against uh, every rules. They should to be in one place. Everybody hunts. Everybody is good with a gun. And so a a lot of the Finnish fighting force, they were sort of snipers by instinct. But their paramount advantage, certainly, during the war was that they were able to uh, weaponize winter.
0: During the battle, temperatures were as low as negative 40. And the Russian soldiers were woefully unprepared. Most of them didn't know how to ski or properly camp in the snow. The Finnish soldiers, meanwhile, were like ghosts disappearing in the trees using snipers and raids to keep the Soviet soldiers pinned down. They rushed in on skis and placed Molotov cocktails in the Soviet tanks, blocking off supply chains and isolating thousands of soldiers who then fled into the nearby forest. All the Finns had to do was go back to their camps and wait for the cold to do the rest.
2: When I went to this reenactment spot, the contrast between the, the tent, you know, almost like the glamping yurt for the Finns, compared to this quote-unquote, rat hole that the Soviet soldiers are hunkering down in and, and basically freezing to death. It's just a little like dugout hole in the snow, and they threw a little canvas roof over it and tried to run a pipe up the middle to have a fire. But, I mean, all those guys were going to
0: die, and they knew it. Here's reenactor Visa Ranico. And
1: they were losing their feet, they were losing their hands because the cold weather was was killing them slowly. They had no, no good clothes for the winter time, and very much people were frozen here, and that is quite awful, awful to think.
0: While the Russians lost hands and feet to the cold, the Finns built saunas in the forest, and their snipers on the front lines honed in on campfires, so any Russian soldiers who tried to warm up were shot. Thousands froze to death. Some got so cold that they attempted to flee across a nearby frozen lake their olive-green uniforms, making them easy targets against the white landscape.
1: It, they tell that they were howling when they were running, so it was a terrible noise when they were going going away. So it was uh, screaming and howling and... Uh, the no awful, awful sound, they said.
0: By the end of the Winter War, 140,000 Russian soldiers had been killed, compared to 26,000 Finns. But even though the Finns massively outfought the Soviets, they couldn't actually win. The Russian army was just too big. The idea that they had been victorious came from the fact that they had spent four months fighting an obviously superior force and only had to give up a little bit of their borderlands.
2: It reads like they lost, but Finns see this as a victory. And the rest of the world kind of does too because, you know, they were supposed to get crushed. I mean, this is like, this is beyond David and Goliath kind of cliche. I mean, this is... Again, this is the biggest fighting force the planet has ever seen in the Red Army against a country of 3.5 million people, including
0: like infants and the elderly. So it makes sense why the Winter War is a point of national pride. But it's hard to avoid the fact that today's Russia is a very different threat than the one from World War II. Which brings us back to David's original question. Where does fire building and hunting reindeer, where does any of this fit into 21st century warfare?
2: So this question was kind of haunting me in a way during the program because in the age of modern warfare, like these tools are somewhere between archaic and cutesy. Yeah. And I say that not to like belittle the Finns or these incredibly capable soldiers, but there was this feeling sometimes, especially when we we're doing some ski exercises, that it was like a 1930s newsreel. You know, the skis look the same. You got these giant baskets on the end of the poles. You know, we're going over little jumps. So... I finally put this question to, like, one of the top guys at the Ministry of Defense in Helsinki. I was like, come on. Like, this is Russia. Like, without any disrespect to Finland as a wonderful, prosperous nation and the the heroics of the Winter War. It's 2017 now. It's not 1940. And Russia certainly learned their lessons from the Winter War. And they're, they are tons of money, ton, tons of people, tons of munitions. Like, who are we kidding? And... He had, I would say, like a very... It was an answer that was both cagey and illuminating. You know, cagey because they don't want to tell me like how they're going to fight back against the Russians with with too many specifics. But it was illuminating because he reminded me of ways that small teams of super-capable soldiers on skis could still kick some serious ass. Apparently, the Finns have all these... Caves all over the country, especially in the north. And I think a lot of them are tricked out to hide um, warplanes. And s- they also have very wide roads it- all over the country so that, like, uh, like in a place like Seoul, like you can land aircraft on these roads, even though they are between tiny villages of 200 and 160 people <laughs> or something. So the idea here is that... Finnish military defense equipment is so scattered that it would not be so simple, even for an invading force as powerful as Russia, to just do away with Finland like uh, in a heartbeat. But there are there are ways that commandos on skis in the 21st century can still um, really inflict a lot of pain. But none of that really happens if you can't ski forty five miles through the night with three other men or women and dig a snow cave, change out of those sweaty clothes that are about that are gonna kill you if you don't, and throw together your MREs with a fire you made and set the explosives in the right way. You know, so you have to have those winter warfare skills or those wintertime skills to be that super soldier who's gonna like make sure that Putin doesn't um, grab Finland in like a in an epileptic fit of land grabbing.
0: What the Finnish understand is that while Putin may be unpredictable, he's not foolish. So what they're doing is making it as clear as possible that invading Finland would be as bad an idea now as it was back then. A lot of the mentality
2: of Finnish defense, I mean, they emphasize that word so much. It's just defense, defense, defense. A lot of the defense strategy is A, making... Russia today remember what happened in the Winter War in 3940, and B, making the cost of invasion look too expensive to bear to, to Putin today. Putin didn't see it as very expensive in terms of lives lost or military cost to go into Crimea, Ukraine. Clearly, he did it. But the idea for Finns is to keep that memory fresh so that Putin is thinking it it's, would just be too
0: costly to go into Finland. In other words, if you're a country trying to avoid redrawing the map of your own borders, it's not so much about using all your military power as it is about your enemies knowing that you have it. Finland doesn't need to fight as long as Russia knows that it can. They've turned the winter cold into a piece of military technology. Powerful, deadly, something you don't want to have to use. But the message is clear. If you come into Finland in the winter, you could catch your death. This piece was produced by Robbie Carver and myself, and based on the article Red Dawn and Lapland by David Woolman in the December issue of Outside. It was brought to you by the warm and sunny state of Arizona. Go to visitarizona.com to see exactly how warm and how sunny. Next time on the show, we're talking to Stefan Guillenet, a scientist at the University of Washington who studies the neuroscience of hunger. Did you know that your brain is hardwired to make unhealthy food choices and that some foods are chemically designed to seduce you? Find out what you can do about it in two weeks.